Institute Sanctuary. And coming up next at 11 o'clock, it's Making Contact, which explores the expansion of gender identity and presumed roles in society. This KBU program has been made possible in part by KBU listener members and support from Portland Saturday Market, 45 years of handmade arts and crafts, fresh food, local music every op- every Saturday, open every Saturday and Sunday through Christmas Eve in Water Park Front Park in downtown Portland and open daily from December 19th for the Festival of the Last Minute. Event schedule, vendor information, and more online at portlandsaturdaymarket.com. And now stay tuned for Making Contact. Like the KBU Community Radio Facebook page. Find KBU Community Radio on Facebook and like our page and have events, ticket giveaways, and great information delivered directly to your personal feed. One out of every seven humans is on Facebook, so using Facebook to share KBU with your friends and family has never been easier. Like KBU on Facebook today. This week on Making Contact. I think it's one of those things where I speak on being intersex. Like, so not just being a psychotherapist, but I'm also an activist and an educator. And when I mention that I am, there, everyone, you can see it in their eyes. They start thinking about what my genitals look like. And it becomes a process where I have to sort of like, oh, no, 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 my eyes are up here, right? Like we're having a conversation with a whole person and not just that part of me. I am a breadth of experiences. This is one part of who I am. And the reason I'm talking to you today is because of that identity. But that's not the only thing about me. I Am Because I Am explores the expansion of gender identity and presumed roles in our society. It looked beyond the socially constructed ideas of what is male, female, masculine, or feminine especially considering Trump's administration's attempt to redefine gender to be solely based on a person's genitalia at birth, thus potentially threatening transgender, intersex, and non-binary identity. In this show, we'll ask questions such as, what does it mean when individuals challenge specific societal expectations of gender? In the case of intersex individuals, how are these ideas of gender being debunked? And how are communities responding to the potential threat of erasure? I'm Anita Johnson, your host this week on Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. For most expecting mothers, the most frequently asked question is, what is the sex of the child that you'll soon give birth to? But what if that child is intersex? As many as 1.7% of people are born with genitals that cannot be easily categorized as male or female. That's roughly one out of every 1,500 live births, and as common as people with red hair. Nikki Kana, an associate marriage and family therapist and intersex advocate says, gender is more than genitalia. When a child is born, there's this like idea that it needs to be one or the other. And um, if there isn't a clear answer to that, it's often seen as a crisis, as being some sort of like terrible thing that's happened. And there are a few very rare occasions where there might be something else mentally going on that needs to be treated immediately. But the 
bigger issue is that it's just a cosmetic. They're just something like external with the body that doesn't match up with that idea of like what a little boy or a little girl is supposed to look like at birth. And then also it's seen as another sort of crisis that a surgery needs to happen, that there's something different about this child or this person um, that needs to be corrected in order for them to be quote-unquote normal. And now, with advances in the field of genetics and DNA, there seems to be at least six known biological sex genes. That's X, XX, XXY, XY, XYY, XXXY. Yes, it sounds a bit like high school biology, but all of these sex genes debunk the idea of what is normal. And despite this knowledge, and despite an increasingly vocal intersex community, surgeries continue to happen. Traditionally in the West, when an intersex child is born, a doctor decides the sex of the child and performs surgery to conform to physical characteristics of male or female biological sex. Sean Seifawal, a black intersex man and intersex rights activist based in Atlanta, Georgia, believes the decision related to surgery is harmful and should be decided by the intersex person, not the physician. When I was born, um, one of the traits or one of the characteristics of androgen sensitivity syndrome is undescended testes. And so when I was born, there was a couple of days when they didn't know how to assign my gender. So they decided uh, that I would be raised as a girl. And, but they wanted to do surgery. They wanted to remove my testes. And my mom, she just didn't feel like it was right. Um, so she made the decision that you know, I would be raised with testes. Now, when I received my medical records at the age of 25, I requested them. And basically, the medical records showed, it's documented, it is documented that it said that the mother has been told that the child has gonads, not testes, underlined, um, and the child will be raised as a girl and will function as such. That is documented on my medical records. So I didn't know that I um, had internal testes. And when I was around 11 or 12, I had um, pain associated with my testes. And because of that pain at 13, they removed my testes. Now, up until then, I had no issues. And I think they could have actually, in hindsight, they could have just... I probably had hernias when I spoke to a doctor later in life. You know, I spoke to a doctor and the doctor said, you probably had hernias. They could have removed the hernias and you would have been fine. But they essentially threw out the baby with the bathwater. They removed my undescended testes, which is a source of hormones for me. And essentially, when they removed my testes, they put me on estrogen replacement therapy, which feminized my face and body. You know, and I identify as male now. So, again, that wasn't the right decision. Sean's story is just one of millions. Stories of parents who were not provided with a full description of how surgeries might affect their child down the road. Nikki Kana, an intersex woman and activist, says that the omission of information is commonplace and that most parents are pressured to make a decision about surgery immediately following the birth of an intersex baby. Well, I think one of the things that is the most common is that parents and the children themselves are told that they're the only one like that, 
that there aren't other people like this, that other people have these surgeries and have enjoyed the results and are happy with them. And they're not given information around how to contact other parents that have chosen different paths, how to be connected to other people who are intersex, other people who have similar conditions, other people who have made different decisions around their bodies. And so uh, many parents are presented with like, either you get surgery A or surgery B, and they're not presented with, you don't have to do anything. Like, no is not even an option presented to them. And they're not connected with support groups. Like most doctors don't even know that there are support groups. There's been a long history of doctors discrediting support groups, referring to intersex activists as all being crazy and being extremists. You know, and it's not true. Like, there's this fear that, like, if you connect a child or parents with other children and parents, that there's some sort of danger in that. I mean, you would never do that if a kid had diabetes. Like, that's the first thing you would do is find support for that kid. If a child was born with Down syndrome, you know, a child is autistic. Like, you connect them with parents and other people that have these similar conditions. For both intersex advocates, Nikki and Sean, the issue of choice is central. They call for patient-centered models that not only include the parents and physician, but inform consent by the intersex person whose life will be most affected. And in order to bring about greater awareness, some intersex advocates embrace the panoply of the I and the LGBTQIA as a way of bringing intersex issues to the forefront of American consciousness. Again, Sean Seifel-Wall. I feel like the LGBT community has given intersex people a platform to share their stories. Because I think for a long time, since this medical violence that has taken place, uh, that has been done to intersex people, the medical community that includes urologists, surgeons, endocrinologists, and other physicians have not supported the stories and supported the experiences of people who have had these harmful medical interventions. And so essentially, I do feel that the LGBT community, particularly the trans community, has given intersex people a voice to share their stories. So that's why I think education is key. With Trump's administration attempting to redefine gender to be based on a person's genitalia at birth, education is key now more than ever. For it could mean devastating consequences, not only for trans folks, but for intersex people as well. The restriction of the definition of gender could affect their ability to access human services, housing, education, and employment. Yet, despite these threats from Washington, the intersex movement against non-consensual medical interventions continues to grow. Amnesty International, the World Health Organization, and the state of California have formally denounced infant intersex surgeries, sending a clear message to the medical industry and government that intersex people should have the ability to decide what happens to their bodies in the same manner as anyone else. For Making Contact, I'm Anita Johnson. There is L, there is G, and B and all of these sexual orientations that exist in and outside the lines drawn by those labels. What may not be as well known are the labels we choose to name gender identity and expression. 
That is, how we embody masculinity, femininity, or neither. Labels that may exist under the umbrella term transgender, transmasculine, transbutch, and transfem, among others. Eden Anali Luna manages the Transgender Economic Empowerment Project at the Los Angeles LGBT Center. With Eden's help, we get further clarification on the T. I identify as trans feminine and non-binary. Um, trans feminine refers to the fact that I was assigned male at birth, um, but I'm transitioning to a feminine gender. And so I think with trans people, especially in the media and in movies and in, in, in the spotlight, there's this narrative of being born in the wrong body and transitioning to become in the right body. But for some trans people, they don't necessarily feel dysphoria. They don't necessarily feel that they're trapped in the wrong body. Rather, they just want the world to acknowledge them for who they are and how they express themselves. And non-binary refers to the fact that someone identifies with neither male or female or neither man or woman and that their identity can be either um, fluid or they can be neutral or they can be neither or they can be all of the above. Non-binary is in some ways another umbrella term, kind of like the trans umbrella that encapsulates any identities that don't fall in neatly within the two binary system. You know, that's one of the things I've always wondered about. Just to be able to fully transition, if people wanted to, let's say, move forward with surgeries, they'd have to be diagnosed with some sort of a medical pathology, uh, gender dysphoria. And then that's how they'd have to identify themselves. That's always tricky to navigate, only because in some ways, um, I think it's great to have some kind of um, word to validate your feelings around your body and how you associate with your body. That may not always be the case for everyone else, and some people may have to say that they're experiencing dysphoria in order to access hormones or in order to access surgery, and that's always another issue. I've seen discussions online that in other countries, um, they would prefer to have it as as a, um, a condition or, or some kind of like pathologization to make the argument that for that reason, there has to be treatment or for that reason, there has to be some kind of protection for their, their gender identity. But here in America, we're trying to expand, at least the trans community is trying to expand the definition of transitioning beyond just being um, labeled or, or associated with the condition of dysphoria. So you've mentioned that uh, a lot of the terminology around gender identity has been changing, and young people are taking on new terms all the time. Like, for instance, I'd never heard the term transfeminine before today. Um, can you tell me some of the other terms that have recently been added to the list? Here's the thing, like, I think the list is ever-expanding. And I think in some ways there is a list and there isn't a list because for folks who do have access to the internet or who do speak English, they have access to channels like Facebook where people are actively having discussions or discourses around the trans umbrella and trans identity. So for me, just even discovering the word transfeminine um, was a journey. I didn't realize the term until maybe within the last three, four years. And then... Even then, I, I felt like it has been growing slowly, but surely more people have been using the word. I've also heard people use transfem, and now we're seeing people use transbutch. And so with that context, um, we're still seeing in America the language is 
uh, at an incredible rate evolving. More and more um, people are coming out and changing the definitions of the word because they didn't feel like necessarily gay fit or they didn't feel like bisexual fit or trans fit. And so we see more people using the word queer or demisexual or asexual or aromantic or biromantic or so on and so on. And then we also see that as well with gender identities. People are using words like transfeminine, transmasculine, trans femme, trans butch, and we see intersections of gender and sex in in the ways that the culture has formed. I think it's important to acknowledge with the words femme and butch that this is in this is coming from, in some ways, lesbian culture, where femme would be indicating someone maybe like a lipstick lesbian or someone who is, um, in some ways, uh, more feminine presenting. Another end of the spectrum would be the butch expression. So butch is referring to, um, in some ways, a form of masculinity that isn't centered around being um, necessarily masculine. I think when we think of masculinity, we think of... Um, cisgender men who are aggressive or violent, whether that's catcalling or whether that's um, being abusive in relationships or being aggressive, whereas masculine can be a little negative or, or in some ways toxic, and being butch can be seen as more in some ways um, like a positive form of masculinity. So that's some, that may be a reason why someone may use the words butch. See, that's interesting because I've never heard that distinction made before, that people would choose to call themselves butch over masculine because of a negative connotation of masculinity. Because to me, masculinity is masculinity, whether it's positive or negative. And butch, in my mind, is synonymous with masculinity. Just like how gay and trans means very different things for everyone from person to person, these are just some of the components why someone may use the word butch. And so when people use the words like trans femme or trans butch, in some ways they're indicating that um, they don't necessarily want to fit into what is womanhood or what is manhood, but rather they want to fit into this idea of masculinity or feminine energy. And they, in some ways, want to redefine what that means to them. Earlier we were talking about um, trans butch and trans femininity and how people might express their gender. For so long, I think the narrative around trans bodies, especially trans men and trans women, is that we have to perform in some ways hyper-feminine or hyper-masculine in order to blend in. And in some ways that never ends because there will always be a trans woman who may blend in to what people may see or identify with womanhood. The moment they find out that she's trans, they're always going to have that chip on their shoulder about how they interact with her. And so because of that, some people may never come out as trans. And so people who are using trans femme and trans bush may be trying to expand what we define as masculine or feminine beyond having to go through the traditional trans narrative of having surgeries or having dysphoria diagnosed and so on. Like in, in the narrative is that in order to be a trans man, you have to work out or you have to like cars or you have to like all these other things that men like. But that may not always be the truth for someone who is trans masculine. To close, I, I want to get your personal opinion on the alphabet soup of LGBTQIA. It's, um, it's interesting because on the one hand, you have straight people and then there's everybody else. So even though we have this n sort of nuanced, ever-expanding alphabet soup, it's a soup for everyone except straight people. Yeah, I think living in this world that's centered around heterosexuality and cisgender people, I think we're always going to need labels. Whether someone ne doesn't necessarily feel like they need it personally or whether they choose not to be labeled. I think in our culture, we're going to need labels to in order to find community and to find people who also identify that way. 
And so while labels can reinforce some of these ideas as well, like you're not gay enough, you're not trans enough, you're not bi enough, so on and so on, they can also invite or bring people into a culture that they've never heard of before. And so there's both beauty and pain associated with these labels. Again, that was Eden Annalie Luna of the Transgender Economic Empowerment Project at the Los Angeles LGBT Center, speaking with producer Monica Lopez. You're listening to I Am Because I Am, the expression of gender identity on making contact. Subscribe to our podcast, sign up for making contact updates, take our survey, or join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. When thinking of the Bay Area, one might assume that it's easy to locate community. But what if you're under 21? Where do you turn to find your tribe of LGBTQ folks? Here's why our media's Cray Lit with a report. I find it difficult to find a space to spend my free time. As a young queer, growing up in the Bay Area of California, the perception is that it's super accepting that it's easy for anyone to be themselves and find community. But when you are young, like under 21 young, it's hard to find spaces specifically for LGBTQ folks. I see flyers all the time for different queer events I want to attend, but most of them are 21 and over. I'm 20, and I'm struggling to find my way as a young queer. Where do I find community in that weird in-between space of 18 through 24 years old? I started looking into where queer people gather in the East Bay and found out about the White Horse. Even though I can't go there yet because it's a bar, I looked it up and found it's located in North Oakland and is one of the oldest gay bars in the country. Rose Ritchie is the general manager there. She says it's the kind of place lots of different kinds of people have been gathering for a long time. The White Horse has always been a gay bar since the doors opened, but it was uh, undercover. There's no general clientele. Well, obviously, predominantly LGBT, but um, it's, it's so diverse. You could not identify what kind of bar this is by what you hear on the jukebox, because one minute you'll hear country, the next minute you'll hear hip-hop, the next minute you'll hear show tunes, the next minute you'll hear... <laughs> and, and it's not just older or younger. It's, it's quite a mix. It's, it's, it's amazing. From what Rose describes, it sounds like an old-school and welcoming type of environment. Rose says it's not an accident that the setting feels that way. She says there are policies that help build the feeling of safety and community. We have this philosophy here where you leave your hate outside and you bring your love in the door. You have to respect each other when you're in this place. And I think that's why a lot of people feel safe because they know we have a zero tolerance for anything like that. If you needed anything, if you came into this bar and said, I need something, um, anyone in this bar would be willing to help. This is definitely a community and they support one another, it's the best place to be. Other people at the bar agree. Since I'm not 21 yet, a co-worker talked with some of the White Horse customers about their experience at the bar and what it means to them. Oh, it means community. You're going to get that every time you ask that question, but it is true. It's like a big family. The White Horse is just a cool place to come where it's just not pretentious, it's not a hipster spot, it's just... You know, you meet straight people, you meet gay people, you meet old people, you meet young people. Like, it's just a, a mix. So I like that, you know, where you're just, you can just come in, be yourself, and hang out. 
you know, coming to the White Horse is kind of interesting because you meet so many people in here that have come here for years. You know, this is the oldest living uh, gay bar, uh, I think, in the country, actually. So there's an old gay couple that comes in here, and they're in their 90s, and they still come here, and it's really cute. You know, you see them sit down at the bar, and everybody kind of caters to them and accommodates them when they come and sit down, and I think that's really nice. I've been coming here since 75, and... It's a very friendly place. I've always felt welcome at. Home away from home. I've known it for decades, and I've, I've seen it go from kind of a tacky bar that nobody admit we go to to uh, to something that I just something I do appreciate. Uh, it's unlike San Francisco. Uh, it's where a bunch of different types of people in the queer community come together where San Francisco it's pretty isolated and and so my relationship to it is that I, I like meet some real genuine people here. I mean it's where I met my fiance actually. Best story I have here. <laughs> Man, it sounds great. Like the kind of place to meet people and find a really chill community vibe. But here I am, a youngin. I can't get in because I'm not old enough. But I'm not even sure I'm trying to hang out at a bar anyways. Folks at the bar agree it's a really difficult time. I think that's just a time in your life that you're trying to figure out, like, who your people are, you know, your connection. You know, it's it's a difficult time, period. And then being gay or queer, like, adds to that. Yeah, I found it really difficult between 18 and 21, um, you know, sneaking to bars and stuff, basically. And then uh, at a... It was like involved with a college um, queer group, you know, gay lesbian group. But I didn't go to college; I just went there. So that was the only way I found uh, community. Um, and then I think it did cause me to, in my early, once I was twenty-one, to go to bars all the time and drink a lot, <laughs> drink way too much because that was, you know, it was like like back then I was a dyke and you didn't meet people out on the street, you know, in a bar. So yeah, I think it's good to have like a base, you know, for young kids into. To not be afraid and to put yourself out there and to like to find those people and to have those meaningful relationships. But I think it's harder for LGBT kids just because there isn't yeah there isn't the assumption of being gay in, or being you know there's the assumption of being straight. Well, queer spaces are important because we need spaces where, for one, we can be in community together, uh, spaces that are safe, um, that we feel comfortable being ourselves. That's Cheney Turner founder of Social Life Productions. It's an event production and promotional company in Oakland, California. They currently host two parties a month, specifically for queer people of color. One of the reasons why I focus on, you know, black, queer, trans, and women communities is because, again, we're not really served and recognized. And also with gentrification, we're the main ones who are being pushed out. I started Social Life because um, I got tired of going out in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I got tired of going out to uh, queer spaces and being invisible as a Mm -hmm. black person, being greeted with hella discrimination at bars. Historically, gay bars were a place where queer folks could find safety and community. Nonetheless, not everyone wants to find community at the club. Social anxiety is real, you know. Mm-hmm. Some people, I have people who, who come to me all the time. They're like, I want to go to your events, but I just can't do crowds. And some people can't do crowds, and that's perfectly fine. You know, nightlife might not be, right. you know, the best. You can't always find community at 
bars and at clubs because, you know, the music's always pounding and maybe, you know, there are different intentions there. That's Terry Salk Wolfson, one of the founders of Culture Collective, a cafe, gallery, and art space in downtown Oakland. Aaliyah Baker, one of the other founders, says the space was intentionally made to be an alternative to the club. We were just kind of talking about wanting a queer space where we could talk about ideas, kind of gather, meet each other, not in necessarily like a nighttime social setting, but a place where you could just come all day long um, and that we could host different types of community events and showcase art. When I visited Culture Collective, the atmosphere felt welcoming. The Revolve Cafe is at the front serving coffee, tea, and homemade kombucha. I like the ginger flavor. There were LGBTQ-themed gifts on the side and lots of flyers for events and community information in the windows. It felt easy to walk in and, like, I could just sit down and hang out. Aaliyah says that's the goal. You don't have to come here and buy coffee to be in the space. You can just come and be. It's necessary because it's visible, and we want to be here and we want to be visible. Uh, We want to be accessible. We make no apologies and are not shy about our presence here in the community. Terry and Aaliyah told us about 90% of events they host in this space are open to all ages, and that including youth in the space is really important to their community building. I think that the age group before 18 is kind of left out, and I think that with... uh, the world kind of recognizing queerness as a thing, I think that we have to take care of our little babies. A few spaces like this are available for underage queer youth in the Bay Area. But these kinds of things aren't available everywhere and can be challenging to access for some folks. I'm still excited to go to all of these queer events I see on flyers and party in the club with other queer folks when I turn 21. But I've come to realize that I've been able to find and I'm continuously building my own unique queer community in all kinds of diverse spaces. I'm Craylit. That was produced by Youth Radio's new network of journalists and artists, now called YR Media. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to Making Contact. I am, because I am, the expansion of gender identity. If you've enjoyed this week's program, do us a favor by sharing the episode with folks. Join us online at radioproject.org and drop us a comment about today's program. Also, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Again, I've been your host, Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening. KBU Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor Judge Torres, running January 10th to 19th at the Milagro Theater in Portland. Judge Torres is a modern-day fairy tale rooted in Salvadoran folklore. Xiomara Torres faces many obstacles in her turbulent journey crossing the border, maneuvering the U.S. foster care system, missing her family, aging out, and becoming the most recent Latinx judge in Multnomah County, Oregon. This is her story. Again, that's Judge Torres running January 10th through 19th weekly on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday at 2 p.m. at the Milagro Theater, 525 Southeast Stark Street in Portland. 
More information is available at kboo.fm on the right-hand side of the homepage under Community Events. The more compassion we have towards animals, the more compassion we're going to have towards other people. If you can value them all, you, you really value yourself as well. So even if you don't care about animals, the, the things we do that hurt animals end up hurting ourselves. It's almost kind of a dominion type issue where we feel we need to control everything. Dominion means stewardship, to take care of. What would a cow think about satisfying our habit? The challenge lies with looking at suffering from the perspective of the person or individual suffering. 